welcome to Socrates in the City Oxford Edition. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you. Thank you, please. Please take your seats, please. Um, I am really thrilled to be here. Uh, I keep uh, saying that uh, the, the bank robber, uh, Willie Sutton, once was asked, why do you rob banks? He said, that's where the money is. And uh, people ask me, why are you coming to Oxford? That's where the speakers are. That, there's so many people here that I've wanted to interview for such a long time. So this is my chance. Uh, we're going to be hearing from one of them tonight, uh, Dr. Ard Louie. Um, now, uh, let me say, if you're unfamiliar with Socrates in the City, it is an interview series, a chat show, whatever, however you want to think of it, a sort of long form where we get into you know, the bigger questions. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And then he blew his brains out in an alley. I don't know if you realize... <laughs> All right, cut. No, so I, he said the unexamined life is not worth living. And I thought, you know, New Yorkers in particular lead unexamined lives. We don't, we shy away from the big questions, just they make us uncomfortable. So I say Socrates and City is uh, conversations on life, God, and other small topics, right? So what, whatever. It could be sort of, I mean, that pretty much sums up you know, everything, right? Sort of on everything. But we try to go for the big questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? We don't always do that, but uh, I would say more than half the time. Um, so tonight, uh, we will uh, get into the, the world of science, uh, faith to some extent. Um, we have as our guest, um, Dr. Ard Louis, uh, who's a professor of theoretical physics Right here uh, at Oxford, uh, he leads an interdisciplinary research group studying problems on the border between chemistry, physics, and biology. You've got to be pretty smart to, to do that. Um, he's also director of graduate studies in theoretical physics uh, from 2002 to 2010. He was a Royal Society University Research Fellow uh, at Cambridge and here at Oxford, Prior to this post that he has at Oxford, he taught um, theoretical chemistry at Cambridge, uh, where he is also director of studies in natural sciences at Hughes Hall. He uh, is also an associate of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. Uh, he's written for the Biologos Foundation, uh, where uh, he was on the board of uh, directors in 2013. He was elected a member of the uh, International Society for Science and Religion. He was born in the Netherlands, was raised in Gabon. Is that how we pronounce it? Yeah. Close enough, and received his degree. I'm an American, so we're, you know. Uh, and received his degree from the University of Utrecht and his PhD in theoretical physics from Cornell University. And most notably, he engages in molecular gastronomy in his free time. If you don't know what that is, join the club. I will ask him. Uh, I have some ideas, but please, uh, a warm Socrates in the city, Oxford. Welcome to Dr. Ard Louis. Come on up. Thank you. Welcome. Come on. Have a seat. We've got free water for you. Free? Yes, yeah, okay. free water. I'm and, not uh, free is good. I want, I want to ask you, uh, I feel like anything I say, you're going to turn into, uh, like when I say free water, I think you're thinking of free radicals or something. I, I've got my science cap on, uh, which is uh, a tiny cap, so it's don't not worry. Bad, not about free water. It's really tiny. It's really tiny. I, um, we met, uh, what, a year ago, and I just had an immediate wonderful conversation with you. We, I think we know some people, we do know some people in common, and I love talking about science and faith, how they relate, how they don't relate, and you struck me as sort of the perfect person. So when I came here, I was really hoping you'd be here 
this summer, and you are. So thank you for being here and for consenting to, to be part of the series. Um, my first question is, what is your story? How does somebody, uh, you know, you're born in Africa. Tell me about that <clears throat> and how you get to be here at Oxford. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in Gabon, Central Africa, where my parents still live. My parents are biologists, so I grew up with a lot of science around. Grew up with a, ch had a ch ch pet chimpanzee as a child. Explain some of my behavior. You grew up with a chimpanzee. I did, yeah. Haven't we all? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, first of all, you know, by saying that your parents are biologists, that doesn't really explain what you're doing in Central Africa. What, what, what are you doing? How, how does your family end up being in Central so Africa? My, so my parents wanted to do some kind of missionary work, uh -huh. having just come to faith a few years before as students. Right, right. And they went to teach at a, at a school in the middle of the jungle, essentially. And then, they, my, then they stayed on. My father stayed on as a botanist. He's a plant specialist. You're uh, raised in the middle of nowhere, effectively. I mean, I've heard you say this, uh, I guess, on a video or something. I was fascinated because you're describing a tremendously remote... Uh, location. Yeah, so we lived in a place where you'd have to drive half a day for the nearest town which had shops. And it was just kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was a school that the local villagers would send their kids to for secondary school. So the villages were off on, on waterways, not very easily accessible. So they would send, once the kids finished some kind of elementary education, they'd go there as a boarding school. So you grew up in the jungle, lots of food around in the forest, lots of animals. Very fun. I mean, for a kid, it's, it's like heaven. And way. both your parents are biologists. Yeah, they're both biologists, yeah. That's extraordinary. So, I mean, you grew up in this environment of, obviously, faith, because the, they yeah. care about that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone there. And science. This is extremely rare in, in my uh, understanding of the world. You don't typically find people uh, who, first of all, you know, uh, in the world in which I live, uh, there may be one parent who's a scientist, but for both parents, that's, you know, it's uh, pretty rare. But for them to also be motivated by faith and then to be uh, serious scientists, it just seems like a, like a fascinating environment. I mean, this idea that you're in the middle uh, of the jungle in Africa uh, and that you're growing up in an environment where faith is taken seriously, but your parents are, are both serious biologists. I mean... In some ways, it sounds like a, a kid's dream, I mean, to be yeah. in that sort of yeah. environment. It just seemed, I mean, to have a chimpanzee as a pet, that's not typical. No, it's not typical. <laughs> so, no, it was great fun. You, you actually enjoyed being part of this community. Yeah, I did, yeah. You I felt did. very much part of the community. Okay. Felt very much like... So did you know from when you were very young that you would be a scientist? I, I didn't think about it so much when I was young. Did At you think point, everyone was a scientist? I, just, I thought it was just a very ordinary thing because my parents were scientists. Yeah. I did, there is a story my parents told me, I don't quite remember it, but apparently when I was in my teens, I told them I need to sit them down and I had a very difficult announcement to make to them. And I told them I didn't think I was going to be a biologist, I was going to be a physicist. Wow. I'm sure they'd be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So I must have been wondering. That's when parents know they've really failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When the kid doesn't want to be a biologist. Yeah. And fit, what could be worse than physicist? That's exactly. just horrifying. Yeah. yeah, that's really sad. I hope my... My daughter would never make such a claim to me. That, that's a, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's serious, because it's, but it, it is also, of course, funny that you knew at a young age, okay, I have to, I have to tell my parents that I'm in love with physics. Now, how does it come to be that... How old were you at the time? I don't know. 14, 15. Okay. How, how, how does it come to be that, you know, at that young age, you know you want to be a physicist? I just, when I first 
encountered physics. I just loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I still think it's incredibly cool. Mm -hmm. So I just thought it was so fascinating that I thought it'd be amazing I could do this for the rest of my life. Since so far, so good. So far, so good, yeah. Although yeah. I've moved into biology, so now I, I spend a lot of my time doing biological things. So that's why my parents have brought it up. Saying, you know, yeah, you well, I want to I get can into run, that. But you can't hide. And I want to get this. into the, yeah. the molecular gastronomy, too, because yeah. I, I love anything interdisciplinary. I think that part of one of the difficulties of our age is people get so focused that they can't speak to people outside of their discipline. So I, I love that, uh, and I want to talk to you about that. But, okay, so you know early on that you have an affinity for physics. You want to be a, a physicist. What happens next? Well, so I go to university. Yeah. I keep studying physics. In Utrecht. In, in the Netherlands, yeah. So I go out to the Netherlands, study yeah. physics. Now, when really you grew it. up, did you, were you speaking Dutch at home? Yeah, so we spoke Dutch at home. And it was a French-speaking country, yeah. but I went to an English-speaking school for part of my schooling, so I had a bit of a mixture. And I, when I was very, so when we lived in the village, I also spoke a local language, but I've lost it, that. So. What was the local language? Banzabi, it's called. Wow. But I can't, I can just say hi now. It's, yeah. It's kind of sad. I've lost well, it. Well, it's, ama it's amazing. But your parents are still there. They are, yeah. Gosh. You go off to university, and what, at that point, what was your ambition when you were uh, an undergrad? So I think my ambition was just to learn about physics. I wanted to learn. I thought it was really fascinating. I didn't know, I was hoping to have a career in it, but it's quite competitive and I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to. Um, so I kind of took it one step at a time. Mm -hmm. Did a PhD in the US. Really enjoyed that. Oh, where? Did in I'm, Cornell University. I missed that. It's not in my notes. So then I, came, then I went to Cambridge. And so just one thing kind of led to another and I ended up as an ac academic. I mean, yeah. the interesting thing is that when you're an academic, right, you get paid money to think about things that you're interested in. In fact, it's other people's tax money, which I say thank you very much. Um, and you're in some sense paid to think about what you think is interesting, a right. kind of curiosity-driven thing. Right. You may think that's odd, but most of our really great discoveries have come from that type of curiosity-driven research. So it's a great job. Basically, you're being paid to think about what you think is interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, there aren't very many jobs where that is the case, right. you know, where you're basically Right. Given that kind of freedom to, to explore. So it's a great, it's a great thing. I'm really, really pleased. Right. And so now you, you, you've taught physics mm -hmm. uh, here, mm -hmm. but you taught biology at Cambridge? Chemistry. Chemistry. Now, yeah. how is it possible? I mean, that, that's uh, very impressive, the idea that you could be teaching at this level in those two disciplines. That, that's got to be a very rare thing. Well, there's lots of places where they overlap. And so and once you know one, it's not that hard to learn the other one. So... Okay, yeah. so it's not that big of a deal, obviously. <laughs> yeah, okay, so I'm not as impressed now that I understand it. Um, uh, so, all right, so in, in this rather rarefied environment here, teaching physics at Oxford, having taught chemistry at Cambridge, did you ever, have you ever encountered, or do you typically encounter, or did you encounter when you were younger, uh, a difficulty in reconciling uh, your faith with science? Yeah, so the answer to that is yes and no. So I think that when you study science, it's so beautiful and intricate and exciting that if you're a Christian, it strengthens your faith. You look at it and you think, man, this is amazing. And there's something, so the content of the science, in some sense, attracts you towards God as a sense of worship almost. Right. So I've had that experience from, from the very first time I started learning science. I just thought really? It's I just, so as a kid? Yeah, it's just, yeah, just the beauty of it. I thought, wow, that's really, that's really cool. So it's a bit like you know, if you ask somebody when they go out into nature and they see these beautiful mountains, does that make them doubt their faith? Well, no, it doesn't. It's the opposite effect. So yeah. 
even though it's harder to explain to a layperson why it's beautiful, it's definitely at least as beautiful as right. the most beautiful natural scene. On the other hand, I think science has a kind of uh, a psychology around it, a certain way of looking at things which can be very corrosive to faith. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, you know, in science, I have a very particular way of thinking about the world, which is I look at things that are controllable and repeatable. Yeah. And uh, that's very different in some sense from the way I might think about my Christian faith, because God might do stuff that's not controllable. Right. And so you can get a kind of way of thinking about the world that tries to put everything into boxes and tries to control everything, right. which I think is it's more of a psychological state, and that can be quite different. I mean, it's, it's actually also bad for interpersonal relationships. So, for example, the classic, you know, uh, let's say that your wife comes to you and says, you know, I've got a problem. I don't know if I should choose A or B. And the scientists answer the, well, you know, which is better, A yeah. or B? And if they're the same, that doesn't matter. And if one's better, choose A. One's better, choose B. Right. Well, that's a classic scientific argument. But you know that in personal relationships, that doesn't work because things are more complicated, more nuanced. Right. And so I think it's really that kind of psychological stance that can be corrosive to faith. Mm -hmm. And so I was, it took me a while to realize that that was what was going on. So I'd be spending all the time in, in science thinking in a very particular way about the world. Yeah. And I'd step out of it. And I'd have to broaden my horizons a little bit. Yeah. And well, that but was I mean, difficult. I guess what I was talking about earlier about your, your, your parents, I mean, the idea that you grew up with very serious scientist parents who were serious about their faith. So in a way, they already modeled this idea that yeah. there's no uh, division between the two or there's no hostility between the two, that they are... Uh, just different ways of looking at the world in, in, in a way, but not, not so different that they're opposed. They're not in different camps. They're just, they can yeah. be related. And I, I guess Francis Collins, uh, he spoke at Socrates in the City some years ago, and it, you know, he, he talks about how once he came to faith, what he saw as a scientist made him uh, marvel at God. Yeah. And you don't hear that very often, but clearly... Well, you, should hang out, you should hang out with scientists more. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, exactly. I mean, so clearly you don't hang out with scientists. Because but I, I'm saying but, what I hear from scientists, part of what I'm saying is, is uh, I mean, you know already, but that, you know, there, there's, a, there's a cultural narrative yeah. that has evolved, uh, for lack of a better word, over the years uh, that has established this idea that there's a, there's a science culture, there's a scientific worldview yeah. that somehow actively excludes God uh, and, but historically, that's not been the case. I know you studied the history of science. So tell us about that, uh, because that's another thing that, you know, people may know a little bit about science, but typically we don't know much about the history of science. Sure. Yes, there's a cultural narrative of science and faith being opposed to each other, something that's called the conflict myth. And, uh, but it's not really the experience I'd have here with my scientific colleagues. So in physics, the physics department, I know at least maybe 20 of my colleagues who are very serious about their faith in the sense of going to church regularly and we meet once a term for dinner to talk about these things. But that's astounding. I, mean, I just want to pause there and take this in. I mean, the idea that here there would be 20 colleagues in the physics department who are fairly serious about their faith, that's big news. That's sort of headline news in my universe. You don't expect that. I have heard that uh, physicists more than other scientists for some reason uh, seem to be faith-friendly or, or are deists or something like that. But to actually hear you 
say that, to confirm that, that that's rather dramatic. I, I, I don't think the world knows that. Part of the reason I want to do this yeah, is yeah, to say that. that people need to know that yeah. because we bought into this, what did you call it? Conflict myth. Conflict myth, yeah. yeah. That's right. So the conflict myth is, um, what's actually interesting about the conflict myth is how powerful it is yeah. given how little evidence there is for it. Yeah. And I don't really know why it's the case. But so historians of science, that's where the word comes from, and they, they've created that word because they think it's a myth, because yeah. historically the way that science and religion have interacted is not conflict. It's been complicated sometimes, but by and large, religion has helped the development of science. Many great scientists in the past were religious, right. very deeply religious, right. Newton, Maxwell, Faraday, etc. And today that's still the case. So the, the facts are different from the public perception. Now, I think what is true is that the kind of popularizers of science, say the Sagan, Dawkins, right. etc., right. they often, I think, I don't know what, why that is. It may be because the reason they become popularizers of science is because science functions as a kind of religious worldview that they're trying to, to evangelize yeah. with. Yeah. Make some good popularizers of science. Yeah. It makes them sometimes bad philosophers. It makes them right. promote this kind of idea. Right. So I think that is a, so it's one of those kind of funny things where it's not true on the ground among practicing scientists. It may be true among popularizers of science, yeah. but that's very different from scientists, right? Well, yeah, and again, that's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, because I thought it's fascinating, you know, when, when you live in the world and you're not a scientist, uh, you're not an academic, you would get that impression. It's a very strong impression. Yeah. It's overwhelming impression. Yeah. But, but my experience over the years reading, getting to know people, I realize it's, it's nonsense, but everyone believes it. And it seems to me that it started definitely with Darwin, that, that debate. I mean, that, you know, a half a mile from here, uh, uh, Thomas Huxley debated um, Bishop Samuel Wilberforce, this famous debate in 1860 right here. That, in a way, was like the precursor to the Scopes trial. It's like this cultural event. People talk about it. They argue about it. And then the Scopes trial in Tennessee, same kind of thing. It creates a popular narrative that pits people of faith against science. So Uh, the the thing about those stories is that the Wilberforce-Huxley debate, the vast majority of stuff that's popularized about it is almost certainly apocryphal and not true. Right. So um, it was a much more subtle interaction uh, Wilberforce was you know, quite careful in what he was saying and vice versa. So, and the same is true, in fact, of the Scopes trial. Yeah. So Ed Larson got a Pulitzer Prize writing about it yeah. and uh, basically showing that a lot of the kind of, the kind of the, um, there's a film in the U.S. called uh, Inherit the Winds. Yeah. It's nonsense. Large, large apocryphal. Yeah. Yeah, but these things never just get spread a lot. So, right. in fact, the, the, so historians of science often push, put the origin of the conflict myth to one of the famous writers is, a, is the, one of the founders of Cornell, Andrew Dickinson White, who wrote a book um, called The History of the Warfare Between Science and Christendom, in which he has like a history of all this, this conflict myth. Mm-hmm. Most of those, so most good historians would say that the book is largely bad history, but it's been incredibly popular and it's mm-hmm. kind of pushed this kind of, that myth along. So the interesting question is, why did bad history, bad retelling of stories, yeah. why did it have such a, find such a fertile ground to grow? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, I mean, I'm not a sociologist or historian, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting question. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, my experience is that people often say to me, oh, that's so strange, you're 
serious Christian and the scientists. But that's because they've been fed a certain yeah. kind of popular narrative, which is incorrect. I think probably what happened, I'm neither a sociologist, but it seems to me that what happened is that science gave a language or a, let's say a side, it gave a worldview to those people who were bothered by the worst of religion. And sure. In other words, if, if you were raised in a, in a you know, a, a, a fundamentalist environment that was very religious, very harsh, very rigid, uh, the idea that uh, Darwin and uh, his disciples had finally come up with something that you could wield against, you know, what H.L. Mencken called the bourgeoisie, you know, these, mm -hmm. these know-it-all religious yeah. fanatics. That's really what I think happened. I think that before that, there, there was nothing for those people to, to grab onto yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the same yeah, way. Yeah. And it was also empirical. I mean, it's one thing for somebody like a you know, French rationalist deist uh, to be an enemy of, of religion. But now there was this kind of proof. There was something hard or whatever. So I, I think that, I'm, I'm guessing that that's really the first time that that happened and people grabbed it. Possibly better. I mean, religious people have done lots of silly things, right? So you can see where people might be yeah. offended or, and find that attractive. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in practice, these stories are always much more complicated. It is interesting that this, that this myth is so powerful and that it has such a strong hold on our public imaginations, given that it's incorrect. Is that I, part of the reason that you have some of these conversations? I know the, the, the organization that, that you're affiliated with, um, the Faraday Institute, is, is to sort of yeah, try, bring try, some dialogue to bring this? Bring some dialogue into this, yeah. yeah. That's try, to, try to push back a little bit on that. Myth, but it's, you know, it's a lot of hard work because people really believe this stuff. Yeah. So science is very powerful, and it, it's probably the most powerful, most amazing thing that human beings have, have invented as, as a cultural form. And so it's natural to look at its methods, which is a method where you look for things that are repeatable or, or controlled in mm -hmm. some way, and to say, well, you know, this method delivers reliable knowledge about the world. And given that it delivers reliable knowledge about the world, perhaps anything that it can't pronounce on is therefore just shouldn't be taken seriously. Right. And at the surface, that seemed like a reasonable kind of thing to say. You only think about it a little bit longer, and you realize that's a kind of nonsensical thing to say. Even the people who say that can't live their lives that that's way. That's right, yeah. But and, it's and a, don't, yeah. Yeah. And so, in fact, I think the reason why if I use science religion kind of debates or talks attracts a lot of people not because they're interested in the intricacies of science, but precisely because they think that science brings us reliable knowledge. So that's, that's a really important question. You know, how do I know something's true yeah. or not true, reliable, unreliable? That's really important. So maybe science will give me answers to all the kinds of big questions that I worry about, like how should I live? Right. Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? Right. Well, but the funny thing and the irony is that uh, people who, uh, who define science very narrowly, right? Or, or actually, I mean, l l let's say, you know, if somebody says, what is science? Science can comment on what is within the universe, right? It can talk about what's in the universe, and that's what it does, and it does that extremely well. Yeah. But most of us have questions that go beyond those things. Yeah. We want to know, is there something, for example, beyond the universe? There's something beyond time and space. Sure. Um, if there is, that would be beyond the uh, realm of science. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to speculate yeah, on it. And we yeah. can even use science to help us figure out what might be beyond science. Sure. Yeah, so let me, that's a good, so let me just try to give you two examples of how 
of things that are import, important but beyond science. Yeah. So let me ask you, so let's say that you want to know what's the value of a human being. Right? That's a really important question to which everybody has an answer of some type or yeah. the other. It informs our legal systems, our, you know, our international politics. It's a really, really important question. Yeah. So how would you use science to define the value of a human being? Well, if you're facetious at chemistry, you know, I see how many gold fillings you have and yeah. that would probably be the most valuable thing in your body, that yeah. seems silly. Yeah. If I was, you know, a psychologist, I might measure your your IQ, but that seems very wrong. Yeah. As a sociologist, I might measure how the community thinks about you. Again, that all seems very, very narrow. If I was an economist, I'd measure how much economic output you make. Sometimes it feels like that's how we're measured. But we all realize it's wrong. In the end of the day, none of those disciplines tells me the really important question, which is, what is the value of a human being? Yeah. That question comes from something outside of science. Right. And the point is that you can't just say, well, science can't answer it, therefore it has no answer, because you can't live life Right, but, but, but some scientists who I would describe as scientistic scientists, yeah, sure. that they've, they've fetishized science to the point that they say, if science can't answer it, there is no answer. In fact, it's almost indecent to look for an answer. Yeah, and so they're I, trying to bat away those kinds of inquiries, which, again, I think of as tremendously narrow. It's, all, it's funny because it's almost a fundamentalist kind of attitude, except regarding science. Yeah, that's right. I think it's fundamentalist. I don't think anybody really lives that way, so it's just philosophically naive. But there's many examples of that type, so that's one example. Yeah. Another example would be, let's ask ourselves, why is there something rather than nothing? So why you look around at this universe and you wonder, <laughs> that, why is it there? Question. Well, that's a big question. That's a real Socrates in the city yeah, question. big question. So why, why is there something? So you could say, well, okay, one possibility is that Let's take our universe. Why is our universe here? Well, it could be that you know something caused our universe, right? And then you say, okay, great. So that something caused our universe, and so what caused that? Well, something caused that. So maybe I should not look at our universe, but just say, why are the laws of nature there that allow the universe to exist? Okay, now, yeah? this is easy for you, but just slow down a tiny bit, because even asking a question like that, I mean, these are huge questions. Sure. First of all, why is there something rather than nothing? Even trying to really grasp that question. Most of us don't ever go there, so to speak. We assume that there is something rather than nothing. To suddenly realize that it needn't be that way hurts the head, right? Okay. The idea that there is something rather than nothing, and yet it really is the question of questions. Uh, then yeah. what, what was the, the second piece? So, of I, so I was just saying... So, so, so maybe I should, yeah, so we take a step back. To me, this, I've wondered about, wondered about this since I was a kid, like why is something like yeah. nothing? So. No, I, I didn't mean not to, to, to get yeah. into that, but I'm saying I'm, I'm fascinated. You know, you ask that question. These are huge questions. questions and, yeah. the, and then the question is, why are there laws of nature? Laws of nature. Yeah. What so, a question. What so, a concept. Because again, most of us who are not scientists, I don't think we really get that. Like, the, why are there laws of nature? Uh, you know, why does math work? Th those kinds of things. That's a, that's a very high level uh, question. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, so slow me down if I'm... Well, a little, just a little bit, just, yeah, to, sure, just yeah. to at least appreciate that's quite a question because most of us take those things for granted. We can't, we can't imagine there not being laws of nature. In fact, maybe it's, it's appropriate that we can't imagine them. You know, it's like trying to imagine the universe not being here. On some level, that's not possible. Uh, it's hard to do. Yeah. It's kind of like trying to imagine being unable to imagine. Yeah. It's not really possible. Not possible, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Try to imagine that you're not really exist. Don't really Try exist. to imagine you have no consciousness. Yeah. You, it's, it's hard to do. It doesn't work because. Yeah. Okay, we covered that. But so, uh, <laughs> but go go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. So I think 
So one possibility would be that the laws of nature were caused by something else, which was caused by something else, which is caused by something else, and you get into this infinite set of causes. Right? So it's perfectly possible. There's been an infinite set of causes, but there's nothing in science that we've ever seen that's like that. So it's something outside of science. Uh -huh. so that's one perfectly legitimate possibility. Right. The other possibility is, well, the laws of nature popped into being out of complete nothingness. So not out of a quantum vacuum or something, but just there was nothing, whatever that means. That's the thing it was really hard to imagine, but it was true ontological nothingness and the laws of nature popped into being. That's another possibility. If you're a materialist, you more or less have to take one of those two possibilities as being true. But and doesn't that require faith? Well, I mean, I mean, if it's not based on empirical knowledge, how, how do how do well, it's, 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 not, it's something metaphysical, right? Something outside of science, right? right? But I'm saying that's a pretty fantastic concept that a materialist has to be uh, anti-materialist for a moment. His assumption yeah. is really not based on something that you can derive. Well, that's exactly. So they have, they have no choice. There's no way you can think about this question without stepping outside of science, and so there is no view outside of science that could that could. I mean, science can help you think a little bit about what it might have looked like, right? But both those two options are completely outside of science. Yeah. So the third option, which is the kind of traditional option of theologians, say Aquinas and others, would be that there is a being, a necessary being, who cannot not exist, right? who's outside of space and time, who willed or created what we see. And that's also you know, as strange as those two other options. But the point is, all three options are strange. And you have to pick one of them. Yeah. So we're all in the same boat that just a priori, we've got three strange options. And the minute you realize that, then you think, okay, I, there isn't somehow I'm rational and I do science and you're irrational because you think there is a God. No, all three options are strange, very peculiar. And that is a hint that there might be something more to the world than just the way we see the laws of nature currently acting. And I think, you know, if you, want, if you want to say there's nothing but the laws of nature, either they, were, they came into being out of nothing or they've always been, then yeah. be my guest. But then you have, to, it, it, you have to realize that's really strange and that you've taken some kind of step of faith. I, I don't like to say step of faith because it sounds almost pejorative. You, you have to make what's a very strange assumption. And so, you know, if you... But, but I, I'm saying, but going with that assumption requires, for lack of a better word, a kind of faith. If was operating on any of those three assumptions <sighs> yeah. requires something that may, people may be made uncomfortable by that word, but what else would you call it? If yeah. you don't have evidence for it, you, you have an instinct that says this is the one. Yeah. No, well, maybe, maybe another way of saying, saying this would be to say there are many aspects of the world which are non-empirical. Uh, one of them, I just gave you this example of the origin of the, the laws of nature. Mm -hmm. The other one I tried to explain to you was what's the value of human life. Um, there are other things, like for example, the existence of mathematics is a non-empirical thing. So this exists whether or not I measure it, it's out there. Right? So there's other things of that nature that are not necessarily empirical in the sense that I measure them by the scientific method, I take them to be true. So the minute you realize that, just kind of philosophy 101, then the um, then suddenly a lot of options are back on the table. And you can try to think seriously about which of these options 
makes the most sense of the world, mm -hmm. which is the most reasonable way of thinking right. about the world. Um, but you have to make you have to answer these big questions. Right? Yeah. You can't you can't you can't pretend that they don't exist. Right. And so what happens in, sometimes is that my scientific colleagues um, do have answers to those questions, but just they haven't realized that they've made them. Mm -hmm. And then they wrap themselves in the mantle of science yeah. and then pronounce on their metaphysical assumptions right. as if these things are, are, are buttressed by science, but they're not. Well, this brings up something that um, I, I wrote a book called Miracles, and I didn't expect to get into the fine-tuning of the universe or anything like that, but I found myself thinking about that in some ways the greatest miracle is our existence, you know, sure. the, the fact that we exist, however you look at it, just the existence of the universe and then the existence of us uh, in the universe, this planet, absolutely fascinating. No matter what your conclusions are, you have to be fascinated when you start looking at it. Um, and the idea that, uh, I mean, it seems to me, I guess uh, Christopher Hitchens was asked, what is the most... Um, compelling argument of the other side. And he said, without a doubt, the fine-tuned argument, okay. this idea that there are so many uh, necessary conditions that this welter of uh, various uh, necessities mounts up and up and up until it becomes preposterous that it could possibly just have happened. So he says this, and he says, and I... I'm sure that most of my colleagues, you know, on the atheist side would, would concede that that's the, the one that stops us most, right? So when I looked at it, I thought, yeah, that there's no doubt that this is, uh, it's so compelling. How could people reasonably think that this just happened? I think people kind of get into sort of strange, uh, baroque kinds of arguments against it. But this, the simplest uh, one, which is maybe the most popular one, is this, the multiverse theory, sure. which... Uh, struck me as comical ultimately because there's no evidence for the idea that, I mean, the, the multiverse theory just being that, uh, okay, this universe is perfect and everything's perfect to make this universe exist, but that's only because there's an infinity of universes or a, a, a multiplicity of universes, so many that one of them had to get it just right and we just happen to be in that universe, lucky us. So, but I thought it, it really is, it, I, I, I feel embarrassed for people who would have to reach for that, and and I guess I was just wondering, um, do people talk 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 seriously about that? It just seems to require infinitely more faith than believing in the, the other side. So that's a lot of points. So, so the first thing is, is that well, the, the fine tuning argument is very interesting. Yeah. What it basically says is that if I change the constants in the laws of physics that we currently know by tiny amounts, yeah. then the universe becomes sterile for life. And some of these arguments are really quite striking. So perhaps my favorite one, partially because of the man who discovered it, Sir Fred Hoyle, was a very adamant atheist, mm -hmm. is this idea that, um, you know, where, does where do heavy elements come from? Right. So we have hydrogen and helium at the beginning of the universe, but they're kind of chemically boring. So where does, you know, carbon come from and oxygen and all those kinds of things? Well, it turns out they're made in stars. So the, the sun takes hydrogen, bangs them together, makes helium. If it keeps doing that for a long enough time, then it's got just heliums left. And the heliums whack together, and they make heavy elements. They basically whack them together, and they stick. It's fusion, like the fusion react, Like the hydrogen bomb is the same principle. So, so, that, so that's great. So Hoyle's thinking about this. Okay, how does that work? So how do you get carbon? Well, it turns out that you need three heliums to whack together to make a carbon. And so he looks it up 
in the nuclear data tables. And it turns out that if you do the calculations, it's very, very unlikely that three are going to stick together. They're going to fall right apart. And so he thinks about it, well, but it must happen. So these three heliums have to whack together and stick to make carbon. Otherwise, there wouldn't be life. And so he calls up his colleague, Willie Fowler at Caltech, and says, you know, there's an energy level in the carbon nucleus, an unstable energy level that's exactly this particular energy because you need it for these heliums to make carbon. And I know it's there. Go look for it. And they're like, oh, it's a crazy Englishman, right? And, he, uh, and, they keep, and they go and look for it, and lo and behold, exactly at the level that he predicts. And, and what, what, what is that called, the level of what? It's, a, it's called a resonance, this technical word. Resonance, okay, It's just an yeah. energy level. You know, so they, yeah. these things have, they have quantum mechanical energy levels inside the nucleus. And this is one that's an excited one, which means it's not normally populated. And he was saying it needs to be precisely this level, level. for the three of them to come together. Exactly. And if that doesn't happen, if that wasn't that way, then what we would have is a, a, a universe with no carbon, no oxygen, and therefore chemically sterile and be a very boring universe. We wouldn't even have planets. Oh, probably not. Yeah, we just have a bunch of hydrogen helium floating around, and that would be it. It'd be pretty boring. So, so that's kind of interesting. That's really cool. In fact, he said this discovery severely shook his atheism. Yeah. 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 So he said that, although it didn't. You know, he's, he said, you remained a quite convinced atheist, but it shook his atheism because it looked like a super intellect had, fun had monkeyed with the laws of physics. So it's... That's really interesting. So what you can do is you can show that if you change the laws of physics a little bit, then you go, you go back to sterile universes again. And that's definitely very striking. Now, the argument would be, well, why did that happen? And a theist might say, well, maybe because God made it that way, which I think is a, a perfectly good and legitimate argument. Um, but it, you know, I, I, I want to not hold on to it too tightly. Because the other thing, if you look around the universe, what do we notice? Well, the universe is really big, right? It's not just big, it's unimaginably big. It's so big that you just can't imagine. You know, there's, there's, there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and there are probably about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. So this number of stars is just you know, hyper-astronomically hyper big. So God seems to like lots of stuff, right? And so... Who's to say that he didn't want to make lots of universes? Maybe he made lots of universes, right? That would be mm -hmm. a cool thing to do. Sure. And in fact, there's a, why not, right? Mm -hmm. So, and in some sense, the idea, the idea of multiverse theory is that maybe some laws of physics would lead to many, many universes. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily fix your fine-tuning problem. So the, the, the idea is you have many universes. If you have enough universes, then at least one of them by chance will have life. But, you know, if I have a lot of things... So let's say I have a lot of odd numbers, one, three, five, seven. There's an infinite number of odd numbers, but none of them are divisible by two. Does that make sense? Yes. yes? <laughs> right. So if I have an infinite number of universes, yeah. it doesn't mean that any of them will have life in them. Right. It's just like that would be like having an infinite number of odd numbers, none of them divisible by two. Right. Yeah. So there has to be the right kind of multiverse right. for a multiverse to have universes that make life. Right. But I, I want to be careful about it because, you know, maybe, you know. Well, there's, a famous scene, there's a famous scene in um, Lewis's Lost Battle where they have this, he has this picture of heaven. And one of the things is you go over this mountain pulse and then there's another valley even more beautiful than the next one. And it keeps going on forever. So maybe it's like that. So, well, that's the thing is it, it's perfectly possible. But to pin all your hopes on that, it just gets a little silly because it's as, uh, you know, outlandish as saying... Um, the God of the Bible did it. I mean, it's... it's yeah, it's, it, so, it, so exactly. It, it, so what, what the fine-tuning argument helps you show 
is that science itself doesn't necessarily point away from God at all. It may point towards God. Right. And I think the more important point is that is that where we get into trouble all the time with science is that people extract metaphysical theological implications from it. Mm-hmm. And so what the fine-tuning argument allows you to do is it allows you to clarify that that's what you're trying to do. Right? And so it's good in right. that nature. Right. But I'm personally a little bit more of a skeptic of this kind of natural theology. So natural theology is I look at nature and I extract right. theological knowledge. Right. And I'm skeptical about it because I'm not sure how easy it is to look at nature completely in this kind of... There's no view from nowhere, right? So as a Christian, right. I look at nature and it tell, I see God all over the place in, right. the, in the beauty of creation and the way it hangs together. Yeah. In, fact, in fact, that reminds me of... You mentioned Francis Collins. So in his book, right, he talks about how he became a Christian. For those of you that know, Francis Collins, who, the very famous scientist who yeah. decoded the human genome, head yeah. of the NIH, the world's most powerful scientist currently, who became a Christian from atheist background in his 20s. Yeah. So in his book, he says he's walking through the mountains and he sees his frozen waterfall. He said, at that point, I couldn't resist anymore. And he falls on his knees and he gives his life to Christ. Now, Francis Collins doesn't think that frozen waterfalls are miracles that you know, that needs some kind of divine intervention to make. Right. They're just the laws of chemistry, which is what he studied for his PhD. Right. But you see something so beautiful, so incredibly amazing. And as a Christian, you look at it and it tells you something about God. Right. So what I'm, there's a very famous saying by C.S. Lewis, which I'm sure others have quoted to you before. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So I think the way we look at these things is to say, starting from the point of view as a Christian, by it I look at it and it makes sense of everything. And the point is, is if I look at nature, I look at fine-tuning, I look at the unreasonable effects of mathematics, I look at the beauty of frozen waterfalls, and by it, it it makes sense. I, I can see why the world would be that way, why the world would be beautiful, why there are laws of nature that have this incredible diversity. Right. Whereas if I start from the assumption that there is no God, the universe just popped into being out of nothing or has always existed, then why would it be that way? It's, I have to make another assumption. Well, maybe the world just happens to be that way. There's a whole bunch of things that don't seem to make sense to me. So it's almost like as a Christian, I can look at nature and I can weave a tapestry together of threads that become a really strong um, kind of cloth that mm-hmm. I can really hang something right. on. And if I start from the assumption that there is no God, I've got to ask myself, so why are the laws of nature regular? Why are they, why are they, why can I understand them? Why do they generate this incredibly vibrant and interesting world? Why isn't our world just covered with, you know, brown sludge and that's it? Right? Why is there even this beautiful world? These are really profound questions that make a lot of sense if you assume there is a creator behind the world. But if you don't, then you've got to just say, well, that's just the way it is. And so at some point, you have lots of, that's just the way it is. It's not very satisfying. Well, also, even the question of beauty. I mean, you say somebody finds a waterfall beautiful. What does that mean if, if we are just, you know, collections of uh, atoms or cells and that we, we have no purpose, uh, there's no God? Then even the idea of beauty becomes meaningless. And anything transcendent, love, becomes 
meaningless. It's just a social construct that has no actual value. It's just yeah, so yeah. I, I think that easy, if you were easily easy becomes that way. I guess denuded of its power. Yeah. Right? So um, yeah. So if you're being honest about it, um, it's difficult to be honest about it if your point of view is that there is no God, you know, and on and on and on. To, to really live that way, I think that you have to, I would say, b borrow from a, a kind of faith worldview. I mean, this idea that love matters, that uh, people matter, that there's such thing as beauty, uh, that I can be moved by beauty, by love, that all of those kinds of things, um, I feel like it's slightly uh, intellectually dishonest to say, I want all that stuff, but I also believe that the universe is meaningless. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to be careful, not call people, you know, people have, have all kinds of reasons for the things that they believe. Um, I mean, in my extended family are a lot of humanists who basically say, well, you know, we take the human as something very special. We just yeah. assume that's true. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I'd much rather have an atheist who's a humanist. Yeah. Even though I think it's a kind of, I think it's, Oh, I mean, it's a kind I, of fideism. I agree, right? right. But, but I'm saying, but I just, I just don't know how you get there. Yeah, so if yeah. people need to so, assume so I, those things, yeah. I, I would say fine. fine yeah. But I would also say, at some point, don't you wonder why, why you care about those things? Isn't it interesting that you care about those yeah. things? Um, I, I think, I think, I think that's, that's true. So I think, you know, maybe people borrow it from the, from religious cult, religious backgrounds. They borrow it from somewhere else. I think people also have very strong internal instincts that that tell them that human beings are valuable and so but that's what i'm saying yeah. where does that instinct come from and yeah. why does it feel so right yeah those are inter those are really interesting questions some right? people would say well it's just a, it's a social construct and yeah. it's meaningless evolution yeah. has produced this in a way to perpetuate the species but there's actually nothing behind it except for that yeah. and i i think most people would find it very hard to believe they'd say i don't know i think there is really something there yeah. i don't know what but i think i think that's right so that's a very strong intuition that we have yeah and so one of the interesting things is to do the exercise and think, what do we do with that intuition? Because mm -hmm. that intuition is mm -hmm. very clearly, you know, spread across different cultures and people very strongly feel it. And so you could say, well, I've now given a kind of mechanist explanation for maybe an evolutionary one or some social one. Right. And this explains it. But it also explains it away. Like it, it kind uh -huh. of erodes it away. Uh -huh. or you, that's, but it's possible. But you also, if there is a god behind this world, then we might expect this God to implant in us certain instincts that, that push us towards things that are true. And certainly in the Christian um, understanding, that's how we think God operates. So I think, it's, I think it's an interesting, it's a really interesting point. And I think that in some sense, uh, people who want to be hardcore materialists yeah. need to think through very carefully what the consequences right. of that are. Partially because of my own you know, extended family's interest in these humanist ideas. I, I, I really valued them. I think that um, it's important for us to preserve that. But I worry that its roots are weak and so that it's vulnerable to refutation and also vulnerable to in the heat of battle in a very difficult situation to start being cut. So sometimes it's a little bit like you know, a cut flower. So a cut flower is very beautiful, but it's no longer attached to any kinds of roots, and eventually it will wilt. So it's all fine and well to say, well, you know, evolution gave us these certain instincts, and that's why I want to be nice to you, because that's something that for cultural or, or, right. or, or historical reasons has, 
given the instinct. But once I realize that that's the case, then I've also explained it away. And if yeah. at some point it's no longer convenient for me to do so, right. then well, why should what I? Well, what if evolution uh, just gives me a sense of the tribe and makes me a racist and makes me want to kill people who are unlike me? Yeah. I would argue that if, uh, if evolution were to do anything on its own, it probably would do that more than it would cause peace and harmony between yeah. among people that are or between people yeah. that are that are different, so it's hard. It, it's hard to know, right? But so, but it, let's say that it did do that. Yeah. Right? Then, on what grounds would we say that that's wrong? Right? Well, that's the point. Yeah. That that's the point. But, so, but uh, I don't want to just say, okay, therefore, you know, people who are materialists are bad people because many of them, including my family members, are very, very moral, deeply moral. Of people. course, yeah. But I just think that on a longer scale than my own life, but the way societies move, yeah. I worry about about um, uh, points of view that are not well undergirded by some very profound thinking. And right. I think that, right. I don't want to say that too facetiously, but I think that some of these humanist ideas, as beautiful as they are, they're just a kind of fideism, right? I believe them because I think they're beautiful, yeah. not because they have any kind of deeper right. roots. Right. And, that's, and so the, the other possibility as a, as a materialist is just to say, well, we should just bite the bullet, a kind of Nietzschean type of point of view, and just right. say, well, all that kind of morality is, is rid well, of that's, it, and that's it's the replaced point. I by something else. I think that if you're intellectually honest, it moves in that direction. Uh, it can it move in it that can direction. direction, and that's a And that's thing. what you have to, you know. Uh, but, but the funny thing is, I think that if you point that out to people, um, uh, they, most people would get it. They would yeah. say, I, I couldn't live in a universe where right. might makes right. Yeah. I couldn't live in a universe where there are actually no values. Uh, that's repulsive to me. Yeah. Well, you, then you say, well, what, but why is it yeah. repulsive to you? Let's talk about that. It's, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't the repulsiveness of those ideas lead you to think maybe there's something yeah. more? Yeah. Uh, wouldn't that be a good clue? That'd be a good, exactly. I mean, on the other hand, you know, people have also, Christians yeah. have sometimes have you know, done lots of very stupid and bad things, even though they should have known better. Yeah. Right? But at least you can say they should have known better for the following reasons. Right, for the following, right. Yeah, and right. so, um, so I want to be really careful and say that, you know, my materialist colleagues, many of them are, you know, really wonderful, sacrificial people. Yeah. Uh, and some of my Christian colleagues, you know, are difficult. Can you, would but, you, would um, you share pops- any names with us? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not many people will watch this. Watch Just one or two names, names if you don't mind. Uh, um, myself included. Yeah. But on the other <laughs> hand, but I, but I think as a, as a kind of, you know, Materialism itself is, has a very, very weak, doesn't say very much about how we should live, about yeah. any of these important yeah. questions. And I think any kind of thoughtful materialist realizes that. Mm-hmm. But what that does is that, that doesn't necessarily say that therefore Christianity is the right way of thinking about it, but it does tell you that you have to find a way of thinking about right. it right. that tells you the answers to questions like what's the value of a human being right. or what's the purpose of living or how should we be, how should we be together as a society. Mm-hmm. And those are questions that, you, that, unfortunately, those are not questions you can... Ignore either. You right. you have to make a, and so that's the great thing about Socrates in the city is that this unexamined life is not worth living. So, a lot of people live unexamined lives, yeah. and they've picked up ideas about yeah. things from and, and, the environment around right. them somehow. Right. And once you make them think about it a little bit, yeah, make clarify things. Yeah, I think thinking is a good thing. Okay, uh, okay good. So uh, it's always worth. I believe goodness is a good thing, mm-hmm. uh, and believing in goodness is a good thing. Uh, okay, infinite regression. So. Uh, I want to leap to the beginning of time and uh, talk about, actually not quite the beginning of time, let's just go back around four billion years to the primordial soup. Okay. Um, do you believe that 
it, it, does it make rational sense that out of what's been called the primordial soup, life would have come? So it, there's no reason why it couldn't be true. We have no good... We have lots of scientific ideas about how it might be true. There's roughly as many theories as there are people working in the field. Um, there are intriguing clues, but there are also huge problems. So scientifically, it's a complete mystery, perhaps one of the greatest scientific mysteries around. One of the greatest scientific oh, mysteries. Yeah, it's a huge mystery. Because it's a funny thing when you, when you talk about evolution. You say, okay, we've got a one-celled animal, and you say, but wait a minute, to get to that one-celled yeah, animal, true. there's like an infinity, there's a gap, you know, to, to go from nothing to something. Okay. And then we can talk about how did that something become two, three, four, five yeah. cells, you know, whatever. That's one thing. But, um, yeah, to, to, to talk about going from you know, whatever, proteins to... Uh, that's something that I guess, uh, you know, in the world in which I was raised, that's an assumption. Everybody says, oh, yeah, these experiments were, you know, done in the 50s, and, and, and it well, seems that th there was some kind of a dishonesty there because the real answer is we don't know. I mean, if you say, what's the scientific answer? The scientific answer is we don't know. Yeah, so I think that dishonesty is a complicated thing because the people in the field will say we don't know, and they fight each other tooth and nail about their idea might be better than the other ones. The popularizing of it, which is not always done by these people, right. was maybe a bit slick. The, the, I, yeah. I guess that's what I mean. Yeah. And, and, and you know, since I so, live in, in this world, yeah. I'm not involved well, in the... Yeah, I, yeah. I don't hear that stuff. And most people just, you know, you go to school and you hear, yeah. this is what happened. Or, you, you know, you, you get... And a lot, of, a lot of things are that way. I mean, the, you know, the heckle drawings in evolution or whatever. You, you just pick this up and you go, okay, I get it. But that, to me, you know, being able to say, to have the humility to say, we don't know would go a long way to help uh, people in the world of science uh, be perceived as uh, honest or whatever. Not that I don't, but what I'm saying is that it, it, it's, it takes humility to say we don't know. And y y we find, I would say, you know, in the world of religion and in the world of science, you, you, you find a lot of people who feel like I've got to have the answers. And I sure. think that we... If you well, don't yeah. have the answer, you don't have to have the answer. Yeah, exactly. You know? So I think that's probably... I mean, so the experiments that you might be... Really, frankly, these, these famous experiments where they put electricity in yeah. and they see... Yeah. So they're kind of striking yeah. because you have these chemicals, you put electricity in and out come certain building blocks of life. Yeah. That's very surprising. Yeah. You find a lot of building blocks of life on comets that come into from outer space. So there's all these kinds of little clues floating around, but the go from those clues to life is a big, big, big step. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's just a great, one of the great scientific mysteries around. Yeah. Now, on theological grounds, you know, do I expect that to have been a miracle? I think probably not, but I'm happy for it to have been one. I don't mm -hmm. think it really, I don't think a lot hangs on it. Well, I guess we have to define miracle, and this gets to the discussion of evolution. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, you, you self-identify as what is called, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, a theistic evolutionist. Sure. Is, is that right? Yeah. Uh, okay, now tell us what that is. Exactly. It's a, so I mean, the, I have some ideas, but I don't want to pretend. I mean, it's a broad yeah. set of things. Yeah. But basically, it's, it's people like myself who think that the mechanism by which God created the complexity we see around us is one using the laws of nature rather than um, specific episodic miracles, as opposed to perhaps uh, somebody who thinks that you know, all of life just was put together in one go. Right. So one, one way I like to explain it is because it's related to the work in my lab. So if I take Lego blocks 
and I put them together and made you a train, it'd be pretty cool. But if I made Lego blocks that I put them in the box and I shake the box for a little while, and I shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, and then I open it and it, they've all spontaneously assembled into a train, even if the train has a few little scratches on it, that might be potentially even cooler. It's a heck of a Lego set you exactly. there. If I could figure that out, I'd become very rich. Yeah. So, so in some sense, theistic evolutionists think that that second way is the way that God created the world. Right. Okay, but so that implies... Uh, l l let me yeah. say this up front just to kind of frame things because I don't want to... Um, again, on the popular level, the popular narrative yeah. in the culture, as I've experienced it, is that there are two ways of seeing the world. One is that God just created the whole universe a few thousand years ago. Boom, there it is. The other way of seeing the universe is that there is no God and through random processes we got here and we're here and that's it. Of course, there's an infinite spectrum of possibilities in between those two poles, and those possibilities typically never get discussed. Um, and so, going along that spectrum, you have some people that are, you know, young Earth creationists who really do believe that uh, everything uh, got here, that God created everything a number of thousand years ago, that human beings were created, boom, boom, you know, the animals were created, boom, boom, there's no evolution at all. Then, of course, uh, the and again, correct me if I'm wrong, the intelligent design folks would say, we believe in evolution, but we believe um, that God was sort of involved at a number of stages in this process, right? Um, but a theistic evolutionist like you would say, um, you believe that God created the universe in such a way that from the beginning he just launched it and that the evolutionary process was um, allowed to work, and that that's how we got here. So that it was intentional, and it was designed, but it was designed all the way on the front end, and then God stepped out of it. So, so one, that's, that's a, so I don't wouldn't quite frame it that way. Okay. So I don't take a step How back. would you quite frame it? So I'm, I'm to, to, to do a little bit of groundwork. Yeah, okay. please. So, well, I mean, so, I'm saying so, these so things very, have been no, no, corrected. No, very, and that's why I throw yeah. it out there, because that's my understanding. So the first question, actually, is to ask yourself, when I'm in the laboratory, what am I doing as a Christian? Right? Am I studying the bits where God is no longer involved? Right? Am I doing my physics experiments? Or am I, what am I doing? Well, actually, I think the Bible teaches us that God sustains the world. It says that in a number of different passages. That means not that if God were to withdraw from the world, it would slowly grind to a halt. The world would stop existing. I mean, it's, it, it, it needs God for its very existence. So what am I then studying when I study the law of gravity or any other law in my laboratory? Well, I'm studying the ordinary ways that God sustains the world, the regular ways that God sustains the world. The question then is, is, are the regular ways that God sustains the world sufficient to describe this change over time, or does it need to be something irregular? And there's a very famous argument between Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, and Leibniz, his great kind of adversary and contemporary. And Did Newton, they both invent calculus? They both invented calculus, exactly. They both invented calculus, they both Man, claimed... That's got to stink. They both claimed the other one stole it from Imagine them. Imagine inventing yeah. calculus. Yeah. And then and your friend else, does the, the same, same darn thing. thing. Yeah. And that's just in the same century and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, just a few years from Very frustrating. Very frustrating. frustrating. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so... I hate when that happens. Yeah, I know. It happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, Newton, when he thought about gravity... So, gravity explains, you know, how the Earth moves around the sun, right? And how Jupiter moves around the sun. But then if you think about it, well, Jupiter is also pulling on the Earth, right? 
and then so is Venus, and so is Mars, and so at some point Newton got worried, and he did his calculations, and it looks like the Earth is going to be unstable, it's going to get ejected by the solar system. Ah, said Newton, therefore God occasionally reforms the planets, uh -huh. okay? Uh -huh. Occasionally, he, when they're about to go off They filter, get wobbly, and he, he gives them a tap. <laughs> and so Leibniz objected to this yeah. on two grounds. The first one was, this, he said, well, if you think God does that, it demeans his craftsmanship, because it means that God didn't quite make it right. And his second, which I think is a, a kind of intuitive argument, but not necessarily a theologically profound one, but he made another very theologically profound argument, which is that his God does miracles for wants, does not do miracles, he said, for wants of nature, but for wants of grace, which is a fancy way of saying God does miracles in redemption history for his own purposes, but not to fix things in nature. So then we ask ourselves, what is our theology of miracle detection in history? Well, it's revelation, God tells us. So now I look in the natural history, the history of the world, and how do I find miracles in the past? That's a really difficult thing to do. And it almost seems like if God had to fix things along the way, it seems like it means his craftsmanship. But you know, I'm not saying he couldn't have done it, I'm just saying it seems theologically somewhat unsatisfying. And so we don't think that we need a special theory of how the planets move around the sun anymore. We don't think that that demeans God in any way. In some sense, it's the fact that it works. Which the, fa is so the fact that the, God doesn't have to give it a tap yeah. now and again, it doesn't trouble our faith. faith yeah. So, and the same might be true for the way that you know, change happened over time. And maybe another thing to say about, so that's the first thing, that's the kind of groundwork. So if I think about that way, then what we're disagreeing about sometimes is whether or not we can observe God doing stuff in the past. And I think we should be, we shouldn't be dogmatic about it, but right. we shouldn't hang a lot on it. The second thing to think about is, what do we mean by the word evolution? And that's where it gets really, really messy. Because evolution can mean change over time, just geology. You know, four and a half billion years ago, there wasn't any life, now there is. Dinosaurs died out, now they're not around. There's no Tyrannosaurus Rex running up the high street. You know, it's changed. So why, that's evolution natural history. And we're pretty sure that that happened. Um, you know, Patse, the young earth creationist, but we think that's happened over a long period of time. There's lots of evidence for it. It seems pretty, pretty solid. Then this question, how did that, so how did that happen? Mm -hmm. Well, then there's evolution, I'll call it evolution number two, which is Darwin's idea. So Darwin didn't come up with the idea that the world was old, that it changed, that was well known before. He right. just said, how did that change happen? Yeah. And then he has a theory that says there are mutations that generates variation, that variation is selected, and that then gives you the change over time. So it's a mechanism. The problem is, is then there's a third kind of evolution, which we might call evolutionism, which says man is a product of a purposeless process that did not have him in mind. It's George Gaylord Simpson, a famous bi biologist, or Richard Dawkins, you know, Darwin allows us, an, us to be an intellectually satisfied atheist. What those guys are doing is they're actually doing natural theology. They're looking at the natural world and extracting theological meaning from it. They're often doing it in a really naive and silly ways, along the lines of, if God acts in regular ways in the world, which is how a theist might look at it, then he must not act at all, so it's all purposeless right. and meaningless. Right. There's no, those, the, the, the conclusions don't follow from, right. the, from the facts. Right. So now you are your average person in the pew who believes in God. You see somebody on television 
Allah Richard Dawkins proclaiming that this is what evolution right, tells you. Right. Well, yeah, you're going to be thinking that's wrong, right? Yeah. And so the natural thing to do is to try to attack the science. Right. But the, that's the wrong way of approaching it. The right way of approaching it would be to undermine the, the natural theology. So Richard Dawkins and all people of that type are, I call natural atheologians. They're looking at the natural world and trying to extract meaning from natural it. Natural atheologians. Yes, yeah. because they, they, right. they look at the natural world and they try to extract right. meaning from it. Right. And so what theistic evolutionists try to do, if they do it well, is to try to not go along that route and try to show how it's actually very, it might point in a very different direction. So that's, yeah. that's more or less what we would do. And so every, you know, I think every Christian is a creationist. We believe God created the world. We just disagree maybe about the, tech, the methods that right. God did. Every Christian believes in intelligent design, that God designed the world. But we don't think that we need to look for intelligent design in these kind of intricate little bits. We think it's just there everywhere. Like Francis Collins, mm -hmm. you know, came to faith when he saw a frozen waterfall, not because he thought it was a miracle, because it it told him something about a God who cares enough about this world to make it so intricate and beautiful. Um, do, are there no examples of what the intelligent design folks call irreducible complexity? In other words, it seems to me that there are at least a few things that would trouble somebody. Uh, so they, 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 so yeah. there, there are lots of things that we don't understand about this evolutionary story. So we, we're pretty sure there was change over time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're pretty sure that mechanisms of mutations, natural selection work because we see them in the lab. In fact, your immune system uses exactly that mechanism. With that mechanism, a small number of genes can fight a very large number of pathogens because your immune system has little molecules that very rapidly mutate and that select to attack the things that it's trying to attack. Uh -huh. So that's a mutation, selection, evolutionary kind of mechanism. So all Christians believe that God created that mechanism. Yeah. Where they might disagree is whether that mechanism is sufficient to describe the change over time. Mm -hmm. But you know, scientists may, you know, there may be some better idea that we have right. at some point They'll explain that better. It's all possible. It's not clear to me that that is going to give us any theological traction one right. way or the other, but it's perfectly interesting. So irreducible complexity is the idea that a complicated structure with many different units, it's hard to understand how that could have evolved. So I think that's a really interesting question. Right. I think it's important to, to, for scientists not to pretend like we've solved that question right. when we haven't. Well, because that was implied, I, I guess maybe it was Francis Collins when I had him, I asked him about, um, uh, and forgive me if you're not familiar with this, but the, 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 the sort of famous example of the flagellum that's, you know, kind of like yeah, a, yeah. A, a, an outboard yeah, motor yeah, yeah, type yeah. of thing. Yeah. And you, you look at it and you think, how did that get there? Yeah. It's so complex. Uh, but at that point, I guess he poo-pooed it as, as though, it, oh, no, we've kind of solved that one, you know, in the last 18 months or something. And I was surprised. And is, is that the case or is that still a mystery? So, so yes and no. So it is incredibly cool, right? So it's a little tiny motor. It spins at 100,000 RPM, stop in a quarter of a turn. It's the most amazing thing. Um, and it has all kinds of really amazing properties. So why... But I don't think that it didn't evolve. Okay. And the reason for that is, I think what Francis might have been re referring to is that what we can sometimes do by looking at details of the proteins that make these things, we can sometimes see that something more complicated came from something slightly less complicated uh -huh. by 
following the, the little changes in the proteins that happen yeah. over time. It's a little bit like when I take that Lego, those Legos in the box and I shake it, and out comes a fully formed train, I can find little scratches on it. If I'm clever, I can figure out exactly who scratched whom. So by doing that kind of who scratched whom, mm -hmm. I have some idea of how, how it might have come together in the first place. And so what he's saying is, well, no, we don't have the whole story, but we have some ideas about who scratched whom, mm -hmm. and that shows us some evidence that it did evolve over time. So the, the real answer should probably be, well, that flagellar motor is really cool. It's really amazing. We can see some evidence for how it evolved, but we don't know yet what the whole story is. And you know, the, the thing is, you know, if, if we think naively that God somehow made that flagellar motor in one go, that flagellar motor is on the outside of the bacteria, those are bacteria that make you sick, like E. coli, right? Then, then that makes God into a kind of a very strange engineer who makes bacteria better at making you sick, right? It raises all kinds of other well, theological problems. Actually, that this brings up a really big theological yeah. problem, the little thing I like to call the fall. Okay. Um, when I look at the panoply of creation and I see a scorpion or a cobra or a thing, you know, I think in the kingdom of heaven there'll be no cobras. Um, so people talk about God's creation, and I've often thought that, you know, it seems that, that the, the Bible says that in the fall, we didn't just fall, but all of creation fell so that the way things are are not the way things were meant to be originally. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't expect that there were poisonous snakes or poisonous spiders in the Garden of Eden, um, so that all of creation fell. And, I mean, that, it gets very complicated, but it strikes me as sensible, this idea that we can't really know what things would, you know, disease, bacteria, E. coli. I mean, these different things... Um, it wouldn't seem to me that they were in the original creation or they'll be, when everything's redeemed, that they'll be there. So it sort of complicates things. It's a complicated question. Thank you. <laughs> so I think it's a very complicated question. One of the really interesting things is that I don't think the Bible teaches that very directly anywhere. What, that, 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 that all of creation fell? Fell, yeah. That's something that we can infer from various things, but it's not clearly there in any kind of an ambiguous way. And in fact, there are some, you know, some ideas, particularly young earth creationists hold on to this quite tightly, which is the idea that it was Adam who fell and nature fell with Adam. Um, well, isn't that the same thing? I don't know what... Well, yeah, no, so, but, but then you, you can ask yourself, then where did the serpent come from, right? So why was there a tempter before Adam? So right. evil somehow appeared before right. Adam did. So why did, you know, where did it come from? Good question. Yeah. So you start thinking about those things, and, and I think to a large extent the Bible is silent on the origins of evil. But, 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 just it, speaks about, but that, it speaks a lot about how to interact with it. But it's, I mean, it's one thing to talk about evil, but the, but the, the serpent obviously, you know, only when it was cursed did it go on its belly. And it, so it was some kind of other creature that was inhabited. But it was bad, right? It was bad, right? So we're saying... So, so well... Right, so people like yeah, Lewis, C.S. Lewis I, I, and others believed in an angelic fall, that there was something yeah. that happened earlier. Well, we're not going to solve this one in the next, next 10 minutes, minutes yeah, but, but, but I just think it's fascinating yeah. to, to, to kind of So I think one of the things I think that, that you know, we have to be careful about as Christians is that we don't too quickly try to explain, have, we don't have an yeah. overarching explanation yeah. of things when the Bible hasn't given us that overarching explanation. The, the only thing I would say is that it seems to me that... If you look at the, 
things that seem have the appearance of irreducible complexity, yeah. uh, the flagellum, yeah. the eye, whatever else, you know, to say that, okay, we don't know how it got there, but we're pretty sure based on the models that someday we'll find out. But I guess you have to wonder, is there any point at which uh, someone would be willing to say um, the evidence says that because we haven't yet found out that perhaps it's as plausible or more plausible to believe that it is irreducibly complex, that it was just created. Yeah. In other words, that some, can, you, can you get there at some point? Or does the idea that that didn't happen itself become a kind of faith? In other words, that there's less... You know, if the preponderance of evidence begins to go toward the idea that um, something is irreducibly complex or enough time passes that you say we still haven't figured out, at what point do you say it would be, it would be plausible to, 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 to guess that, yes, in fact, that this was just yeah. cr- created? Or I guess um, I want to go back to the Cambrian um, explosion, the same idea, right? Yeah. It was that, that the... There's this idea that, uh, you know, things are evolving and evolving, and then suddenly, 530 million years ago, something, uh, there's this huge explosion of Of forms. Forms, And the intelligent design folks say, you know, there's an example of of there's there's no antecedent. It just happens. I'm guessing that you would say, well, it looks like it just happened, but probably there was some mechanism before that baked into the system so that at 530 million years ago it's triggered and then we get all these life forms. Am, am I roughly... That's right, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I would say probably that is true. Yeah. And I think the difficulty with saying um, it must have been a, you know, some kind of divine intervention yeah. is you need to kind of rule out all other things. Right? Right. And so that happened a long time ago. We weren't around. We don't, we know, it's right. amazing that we know anything about it at all. Right. right? And so I think we should just think it's really cool, right? But to say, oh, you know, it could have only happened by a miracle when we were... Well, to say it only could happen by a miracle... Or that's most likely... Is, most likely. So maybe I would say, to say the most likely inference is that it happened yeah. by a miracle is... That's a pretty big step, right? Well, that, but that's so what I'm and, saying. And, is and, like and, at what point... And then, and then, you then, know, I, then I hear Leibniz whispering in my ear, right. you know, God doesn't do miracles well, for once of nature, but for once of grace. Right. And I think, well, that's... That is well, but, we see. but see, if that is... Um, just a theological argument. The end right, of but that's what I'm saying. But, it, but, it, but, it, but, it, but if you buy that, and I probably do, I, I don't know, but I'm saying, but if you buy that, that solves the problem. That, that no, that everything was baked in from the beginning, and it, it happened, and that was how God chose to do it. Yeah. And by the way, if he is sustaining things now, who's to say that that isn't a kind of... Um, uh, intervention except instead of happening boom here 530 million years ago and boom here and you know boom here when we make the flagellum but that that is happening constantly and infinitely and so you can't slice it you can't say well it happened here and then again here and then again here but but that it's always happening in various degrees I mean that you know at that point I think you just have to shrug because you don't you don't know Um, so, so here's another way of thinking about it. So if you take my example of the three different ways the universe may have, the laws of nature may have come about, the one that I prefer, and I think gives well, is that there is a, you know, there is a 
necessary being who cannot not exist, who created this world. So then, clearly, God is something outside of the natural world. God is not an animal like us, only bigger and smarter, right? It's, some, it's someone completely different. Right. So our ability to know about God um, is, is also going to be limited, which is why we're very dependent on something like Revelation, which is where if you think there is something like a God who created this world, and you look around the world that's beauty and intricacy, it seems like something like that might, must be true. Yeah. Then you wonder, well, how would this God communicate with us? So I'll give you an example. So when I was a PhD student, I had a, 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 a housemate who loved tropical fish. And he was a chemist. So tropical sea water fish, in fact, are actually very sensitive. You mess up the water, they die. You do the wrong food, they die. So he used to nick stuff from the chemistry lab to measure the water and make it perfect. Spent a lot of money on them. We were PhDs and didn't have very much money. We fed them special fish, you know, little shrimps, little flaked fish, all kind of stuff. Right. In spite of all our love, care, and money, every time we walked over to that tank to feed them, they'd all cower away in their little holes. So I thought to myself at some point, well, how would I communicate to these fish my love and my care and sustenance for them. Well, the only way I could do that is if I somehow became you know, a fish and spoke to them in fish language, whatever that is. So in some sense, if there is a God who created this world and who perhaps loved this world, then I would expect there to maybe be something like an incarnation or revelation, but that the difference between the fish and me is tiny compared to the difference between me and God. So given that that's the case, I want to be careful about assuming that God would do things in certain ways that falls outside of what he tells us about right. in his revelation, just because it may be really, really different. Yeah. Huh? Wow. Uh, I have to say this has been a lot of uh, fun for me, a real joy okay, okay. Uh, to have this conversation. I'm sorry we're, we're out of time, but uh, it's been really terrific. So, a warm Socrates in the City Oxford uh, thank you is due for um, our guest, Dr. Art Louis. Thank you very much.